morning I want you to open your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. And I want to speak this morning on the beginning of marriage. And we're going to talk about marriage and family for a few weeks. But I want us to see the beginning of marriage. I've had a delightful time in preparing this and examining some of uh, these uh, statements in the scriptures that we sometimes kind of get in our mind and we ha think we have an understanding of them and we just kind of pass on. And uh, it's just uh, given me a, a new appreciation, new appreciation for marriage, a new appreciation for, for my own marriage and uh, what God has to say about it. So follow with me as I read verses 26 and 27 and then we will bow together for prayer. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, again, it gives us a record of history, a record of your creative work, a record of our own origins and beginnings. And we pray that you would use your word to instruct us this morning, to inform us and to challenge us, and we'll give you thanks for it. Thank you for this blessed text that tells of the fact that you are the one who started marriage and family and help us to appreciate these things today, perhaps as never before. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that both Genesis 1 and 2 give us an account of God's creative work. Uh, they do not contradict each other. They complement one another. And Genesis 1 gives us a very clear statement, but you cannot get the full picture unless you read a part of Genesis 1 and then go and see the further instruction that's given in Genesis 2 and then you really have to come back to Genesis 1 and get the completed story. And so these first couple of verses that we've read this morning, verses 26 and 27, tell us of the counsels of God in eternity uh, with regard to man and the fact that God, speaking within the triunity, one person to the other, says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And we're not going to expand on those two terms a lot this morning. I think I touched on them not too long ago in a message. The concept of image is more the concept of representation. Man would represent God to the rest of creation. He would have dominion over the creation. And the concept of likeness has to do with man reflecting God. We are, we are made like God. We are different from the animals. We are uh, able to be aware of the world, we are aware of ourselves, we are aware of God, we have intelligence, we have a will, we have the ability to create, we have the ability to do all kinds of things that distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. Now, I laugh sometimes when I watch some of the nature programs today and they're trying to, you know, convince us more and more that, uh, you know, the animals are really a whole lot like us. I saw one the other day, they had a monkey that he was able to count. And he was able to hit, you know, a one and then a two and then a three and then a four and then a five. And they were so amazed, you know, at this and so on. But, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about the beaver. You know, beavers build dams, but they never build high-rise apartments. You know, they, they, they have the instinct. They can build a dam. Nobody has to teach them how to do it. They do it, and they just keep existing that way. But there's no, no creativity, whatever. An animal's an animal. 
God made us so totally different, we are like unto him. And that's that concept of image, we represent God, likeness, we are like God in the terms of these uh, abilities and intelligence and sensibility, emotion, and all those kinds of things. Verse 27 makes simply a completed statement. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now we can't stop there. We have to move to chapter 2 to get the expansion of that statement. And then we have to come back to verse 28 once we've examined chapter 2. So let's go over to chapter 2 and kind of see the expanded commentary on this fact that God created mankind, male and female, created he them. Verse 7 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, God called creation into existence. He made man. He takes of the dust of the ground, and all of the elements that you can find in soil are found in the human body. He takes of the dust of the ground and he fashions this man and then here is this unique work of God for us. He simply called the animals into the existence of life but to man he specifically breathes into the man and the man becomes a living soul. And that includes the concept of immortality. God created you and me to live forever. And we have every reason to believe that if Adam and Eve had not sinned, that they would have continued to live and would be living unto this day. But, of course, they violated the instruction of God and took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had said, in the day you eat of that, you will die. And that's why death came. But when God breathed into this man the breath of life, he became a living soul and he had within him immortality, the ability to continue to live. Now, notice, if you will, down in verse 8. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So he makes Adam, now he takes him to a unique place, a special place, this garden of Eden, and he puts the man in the garden. Now jump over to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden, for what purpose? To dress it and to keep it. Now, in other words, man was created to work. Sometimes we associate work only with the curse. Uh, work is multiplied in difficulty because of the curse. Now there are the weeds and the thorns and the thistles and all that goes along with that as a, as a result of the curse. But when God created man, he put him in the garden to work. He was to dress the garden. He was to keep the garden. To dress means to work it and to till it. And to keep it simply means to attend to it, whatever might be involved in that, picking of the fruit, if you will, or whatever there might have been necessary to be done. Now, God gives man the assignment of work before he ever even created the woman. And we should keep that in mind because that is the intended plan of God. Man is to be the worker. Man is to be the one who goes out and does the work. And we touched on that a little bit in one of our Sunday evening messages about ladies in their workplace and that kind of thing. The, the heart of God, the thrust of God in creation, before the woman ever came into existence, the man was put into the garden. He was to be the one doing the work. 
And then, of course, the warning of verse 17, to not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we come to verse 18. Verse 18, God having created the man says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now you remember the statement of the scriptures is that God created everything and God saw that everything was good. Now there was one element, one aspect that was not good at this particular moment, and that was that the man should be alone. And so God says this statement, I will make him and help meet for him. Preparation for this message, I tried to do a deeper study on this term help, the helper, and try to get some, some better understanding of it. Uh, it's a term, as you know, that obviously includes the concept of help. The man is the head and the woman is the helper. The man is the leader and the lady is the help. But this term also includes the idea of, uh, of answering to. I don't mean answering to in like the man is in charge and, and the woman answers to him. But I mean answering to in the sense of, of matching. Uh, if I said to you, bread and, you would say, water. I would say butter myself. But When you have a history of prison experiences... That ruined that illustration. All right, what if I said peanut butter and... Good, I thought you'd say bananas or something. <laughs> the, the idea is that those things have come to, to us to, to answer to each other. They, they just go together. They, they fit one another. That's the idea of this term. God said, I'm going to make a help meet for this man. I'm going to make something that answers to him, goes with him, fits with him. Interesting, too, this term carries with it the idea of responding. The uh, idea of the helper is one who responds to. Uh, I've often said, and I, I believe with all my heart, that if a marriage goes astray, the problem is most of the time the man. Because the man is the leader, the man is the aggressor, the, the man is to take action, and the role of the woman is to respond. If you want your wife to love you, you can get her probably to love you better if you love her. Uh, that spiritual parallel is given to us between the church and Christ. We love him because he first loved us. The church, the bride, did not seek out the spiritual groom and love him. Rather, he loved and she responds in love. And the, this, that concept is built into this term. So, sir, if you want your wife to love you, uh, if you want her to treat you right, if you want her to, to do right, the idea is that you are the leader. You love, she'll respond. You care for her, she'll respond. You meet her needs, she'll respond. That's the idea of that term. And God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, and I want to create someone who will respond to him. That's that concept. It's a term that carries the idea of, uh, of completing. Uh, the plan of God, even though, as we know in the Scriptures, God sometimes uh, uh, identifies some people that he wants to be single. But as you look at the Word of God, and the, the general plan of God for mankind is that the man would be married. And the, the plan of God is that there would be one who would complete him. God said, it isn't good for the man to be alone. He needs a helper. He needs one who will complete him and make him fully what I intend him to be. 
and it is that married relationship that does that. And so this term helper is a very interesting term. And uh, I want you to think of it, if, if you are married today, I want you to think of it a little bit in, with that thought in mind. Your wife answers to you. You are to be a, a match. She responds to you, husband. If you will be what you ought to be, you will see your wife respond to that emotion and that physical affection and that spiritual leadership and so on. She'll respond. If the man falls, then his wife will not do well if she tries to, to be the leader. He, he leads, she will respond to it. And then again, this idea of completing him, making him, in a sense, the, the fullest person that he was to be. Now, verses 19 and 20 remind us that God brings to Adam all the beasts of the field, and Adam names them, but the acknowledgement is made in verse 20 for Adam. There was not found to help meet for him. None of the animals matched None of the animals would be the responders. None of them would be the completers of this individual. Look at verse 21 and what happens. And I think it's important to realize that what happens in verses 21 and 22 is not an afterthought on God's part. Uh, that God realizes, oh, I've made this man and, and uh, you know, it's not good for him to be alone. And, and now I need to do something about it. I'll, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll cause a, a deep sleep to fall upon him, and I'll, you know, I'll take one of his ribs, and, and boy, I, you know, I should have taken care of this, and now I've got you know, to kind of mess up this creation that I've just made. I'm going to have to take a rib from him. and That's not the picture. I, I think of that concept when I think of PennDOT. You know, I, I think of them uh, macadaming a road, and it's beautiful, and all of a sudden it's like they forgot to do the sewer, and so they go back and dig it all up again and get the sewer straightened out, and then you got a patch for the rest of your life. And that's not what God was doing. He wasn't saying, oh, I created this man. Oh, no, it's not good for him to be alone. Now, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to have to operate on him and, and mess him up, and that's not it. God is, is doing something here with great purpose. It says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs. I want you to get a thought on that with me this morning closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. I looked up this term and found, interestingly enough, that this term translated here, ribs, is found about 41 times in the Scriptures. And only on maybe two or three occasions is it actually translated rib. Most of the time in the Bible, by far most of the time, so it would be what, maybe 38 times, it is translated side, side. And I think we would do well, and I'll show you why in a moment. I think we would do well to escape the idea that God simply took a rib bone and fashioned this woman. I think we would do better to understand that God, as the statement says, took one of his ribs. He took one of his sides. It is more than simply a bone. He took one of his sides, and he's going to use that to fashion the woman. The side, verse 22, the side from which the Lord God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now look at verse 23 and it'll help you understand why I think that's the way we should grasp this. Because Adam said, this is now bone of my bones. Now if God only took a rib, only took a bone, then Adam could have stopped at that point. But he didn't. He went on and he said, and flesh of my flesh and flesh of my flesh 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was not just that she was bone of his bones. She was bone of his bones and she was flesh of his flesh. In other words, in every sense, God took the bone and the flesh of this man, took the side of this man. And as I studied it, I realized only then does it make sense when we later will read that when a man and woman get married, they become what? They become one flesh. So let's, let's escape the idea of he simply he took a bone and he used it. He took the side because what God is trying to accomplish in that initial relationship of Adam and Eve and what God is then trying to repeat in our relationship of marriage is a very incredible oneness. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh. In every sense, she is a part of the totality of that man. Now it goes on and says this. Verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now, Adam and Eve, you see, were of the same body. That's the idea. They were of the same body. Now, we are told here as a pattern for marriage that when we get married, the man leaves his father and mother, he joins to his wife, he cleaves to her. Let's understand what the cleaving is. Because this morning, I want you to maybe again get a, a different perspective or a broader perspective on, on what your marriage relationship is. To cleave means to join unto, but it is not simply to be, say, stuck to each other or glued to each other. It's not like, uh, you know, we took Elmer's glue and we, you know, we stuck two things together and now, you know, they are, they are cleaved together. It is not that. The concept is rather uh, what happens in welding. If you weld two things together, the two things are in fact melted into one another. Not just stuck to each other, they are melted into one another. And in that sense, they become one. And in that sense, imagine what happens if you ever try to rip that apart. You see, you're not just pulling two individual things apart. You are ripping apart something that has in every sense become one. Uh, we shared in the prayer meeting, maybe Wednesday night, about a, a gal who uh, had a very serious cut on her hand. Her whole thumb was, was cut back, and we were relating uh, how the new pastor had responded and wanted to know if maybe she should consider what sin she had committed in order for that thing to happen to her. That's quite a response. But in any event, when she went in to get this repaired, uh, because of the severity of it, what they had to do to repair it was they, they attached her thumb to another part of her hand. And what happened when that occurred is that's the only way they could get a proper grafting in a sense. So when they attached the thumb to the other part of the hand, it actually grew together. And they knew, that was the plan, they knew that they would then have to come back later and and sever that but that's the only way they could get a proper skin covering over this thumb so they actually put it together knowing it was going to grow together 
Now, get the idea of that. It's not, again, simply things stuck together. It is a union of melding together, growing together. In other words, what God did when he made Eve, he took the very side of the man so that they were in every sense of the same body. Now God comes to us and says, now I want to tell you what I want for your marriage. I want to tell you what happens in your marriage. The man leaves his father and mother and he cleaves to his wife. And what happens is they're not simply stuck together, they are melded together, they are united together, they grow together, they are attached in that sense. They become one. That's what God did in your marriage. And our challenge is to try to grasp that, to try to understand that and appreciate what God has done. Is it any wonder that the New Testament tell us, wherefore what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, because it is not simply pulling two things apart that are stuck together, it is in fact ripping apart that which has grown together and been united in that sense. It would be the same thing as trying to rip an arm off of a person. That's the union that God establishes in marriage. This is the beginning of marriage as God established it. And I think it's an amazing truth when you, when you seek to get hold of it. Verse 25 makes this statement. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and we're not ashamed. I think we need to understand what's implied by that statement. This couple, praise the Lord, before sin ever came, were not ruled by sensuality, something that everybody in this room battles with. Uh, they were not under sin, something that everybody in this room battles with. So it is not simply that they were naked and you know, oh, we're naked and we're not ashamed. No, the idea of the term is they did not know what shame was. They didn't know what shame was because there was no sensuality, there was no sin, there was no sin nature. That's the beauty of that text. They didn't even know what shame was. It was not simply that they overcame their inhibitions, which sometimes people think is some kind of victory over shame. Well, we're not inhibited, you know, we can, we can do anything and we don't care. It isn't that. God had made them in purity and they did not even know what shame was as they stood before each other and God had brought them together. Take note, if you will, back to verse 22, a thought I had, and I just want to go back and, and make sure I, I get it across. Verse 22 says, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto him. And that concept is really a formal bestowment. That was really the marriage taking place. God made this woman and he brings her to the man and the man receives her and there really is the, the union taking place as far as marriage as, uh, as we would understand it. And therefore, again, the pattern is given to us in verse 24. That's the beginning of marriage. Uh, in a day when, when people have such little regard for marriage you and I need to try to appreciate the depth of the relationship all the more understand what God has done young people someday you'll get married understand what that will mean in that day 
And we who are married here today, we ought to try to get a, a better and better understanding of that. We don't want to follow along behind the world, losing appreciation for marriage. We want to get into the Word of God and gain a deeper appreciation for this union that God has created. Now let's go back to, to chapter 1 and verse 28, because really we have to go back here to get the final statement. In chapter 2, we simply move to, to the third chapter, which tells us about the fall into sin. But uh, chapter 1 and verse 28 really concludes this creative work, and he speaks to the couple, not given to us in chapter 2. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish. That word replenish does not suggest redoing something that's been done. It's a term that is often rendered simply fill. Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And you and I should understand that obviously a great part of God's intent in establishing marriage was that children would be born. That was God's plan. Fill the earth. Uh, our population has done a pretty good job filling the earth. Uh, unfortunately, we are destroying so many but that's what God wanted, fill the earth. And that's a great part of what marriage is all about. And I, I feel bad sometimes when I hear folks today talk about getting married, but uh, you know, they don't, they're not going to have any children. Well, remember Malachi, and we're going to be in that text, but a part of it was that there might be a godly seed raised up unto the Lord. And that's the challenge of parenting. That's the challenge for Tom and Peggy as they stood before us this morning, that Stephen would grow up as a godly seed who will live for Christ and know Christ. And that's the challenge for every single one of us as parents, if God gives us children. So I want you to see this beginning of marriage, this incredible work of God that took place as he began the human race and started that which all of us are experiencing today as husbands, wives, and, and family. Take your Bible tonight and open to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. Malachi, chapter 2. I want to speak tonight on the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is holy ground. It's not just a human relationship that the man and woman agree to. Marriage is of God. It's God's ground, and uh, we need to reface that truth. Uh, we suggested this morning, I'll re-suggest it tonight because others are here, that the foundation of the family is the marriage. The marriage has to be strong, it has to be right, and only when it is, except by unusual grace of God, can children turn out to be what they ought to be. Sometimes. Children turn out right in spite of their homes. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Children ought to turn out right, and grandchildren ought to turn out right because of their homes. And so homes have to be right. Marriages have to be right. And uh, Malachi has something to say about it. I want to pray and then kind of set the scene of where Malachi the prophet fits into the program of God because I think that is important to see where he fits in and then understand something of the significance of his message about marriage. But let's pray before we go any further. Our Father, we thank you for 
this day. Thank you for the privilege of being together tonight and pray that as we open your word, we might sense the presence and power of thy spirit ministering to our hearts, deepening our convictions, strengthening our marriages and our homes. And Father, we'd be so grateful if every marriage here today would be lifelong and would know your rich blessing in spite of difficulties and trials and troubles that might come. And we would thank you for it. I bless your word because we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You are familiar, I'm sure, with the history of Israel and how we get to the book of Malachi, but let me rehearse it with you very briefly. Uh, Israel, led of Moses, comes out of Egypt and finally gets to the land. In due time, they cry out for a king. God didn't want to give them a king. He wanted to rule them theocratically, directly. They wanted a king, and so they get King Saul, and then comes David, and then comes Solomon. And Solomon, because of his sin and rejection of God's word, is told that the kingdom is going to be divided. It ends up divided with his son Rehoboam coming to the throne, but Rehoboam follows the guidelines of the young counselors instead of the old counselors, and he gets harder and harder and harder on the people, and there's a rebellion. And the northern tribes rebel under the leadership of Jeroboam, and under his leadership they become known as Israel, and the southern tribes, basically Judah, stays under Rehoboam, they became known as Israel. Uh, as Judah. And uh, pretty soon, the northern tribes are taken into captivity to the Assyrians. Eventually, the southern tribes are taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And it is that captivity that we are most familiar with, the Babylonian captivity. That's when Daniel is taken. That's when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are taken. And, and that's the, the message that for 70 years they are going to be in captivity. Finally, the 70 years ends. And a band of some 50,000 people are allowed to come back to the land of Israel. They come back under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and so on. And back into the land they come. The exile is over and they're home. And you would think that they would have a great zeal and excitement for God. Finally home after these years of captivity and slavery. But they don't. God sends to this group of people three prophets, what we call the post-exilic or the post-exile prophets, three of them. Haggai speaks to these people back into the land. Zechariah speaks to these people back in the land. And finally, the last messenger of God to these people is Malachi. Malachi is the last prophet of God. After he speaks, we enter into what we commonly call the 400 silent years. God will not speak again by one of his servants until John the Baptist comes on the scene. Malachi, the last messenger of God, trying to draw people back to the Lord, trying to stir them to have a heart for God, but these people were hard, and calloused, and still rebellious. And it's in that setting that we read this book and we read the particular challenge that takes our attention tonight. I want you to look with me in Malachi 2, beginning in verse 10. 
And we're going to work our way through the balance of this chapter. As Malachi presents to these people the sanctity of marriage. In verse 10 we read, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? God had made a covenant with the people of Israel. He had made tremendous promises to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those promises then extended to the nation. And I want you to go back with me because this covenant, the covenant promises and such of God, are significant when it comes to who these people were, their uniqueness as a people, and the plan of God for them. And while there is a great distinction between the church, us, and Israel, yet the church, you, as a born-again Christian, you are a part of God's unique people today. I want you to go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We do that. Hold your place in Malachi. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, follow as I read. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son, for they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may ser serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, Break down their images, cut down their groves, burn their graven images with fire, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Absorb some of those statements for a moment. Get the flavor, if you will, of what was being said to these people. God was saying, I have called you to be my people. Not because there was anything special about you. Not because you were great in number or had anything special about you in yourself, but I loved you. And few in number that you were, I called you unto myself 
and I have established a covenant with you, you are my people. And therefore you are a distinct people and a unique people and a holy people. And I don't want you to mix with the nations because they will only take you into sin and idolatry. They will draw you away from me. Remember who you are. You and I as born-again Christians today ought never to forget the privilege that is ours to know the God of the universe is our God and His Son is our Savior. It's with that message behind him that Malachi is challenging these people. He says, why do we deal treacherously? That term means unfaithfully, deceitfully. Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning? To profane means to violate holy ground. You have profaned the covenant of our fathers. You have ignored and violated this incredible agreement, this covenant that God has established with us. And then Malachi is going to let them know that there are two ways in which they had profaned the covenant. Verse 11 and 12. He says, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved. How did Judah profane the holiness of the Lord? Here's what it says. And hath married the daughter of a strange God. That was the first way. They profaned the holiness of the Lord. God said, look, I am taking you unto my people, and I want you to avoid the world around you. You are uniquely mine. Therefore, I don't want you to, as it's put here, marry the daughter of a strange God. I don't want you to marry the unbeliever because the unbeliever will take you away from me. Notice the next verse. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, out of the place of blessing, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts, the priest. God says, look, this is so important to me. If a man marries someone out of the faith, I will cut him off from the place of blessing, and it doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter who he is. And so the first thing where Judah had violated this covenant with God is that they were marrying out of the faith. They were marrying the unbeliever. You know how important it is for you, especially you young people here who are not married yet, you know how important it is for you to make sure that you marry a child of the living God? And what happens when somebody doesn't is they have the idea, well, maybe I can win them. Listen, the unbeliever always drags down the believer. Always. And yet it has become common among God's people today to care not for the uniqueness of that position, child of the living God, and therefore walk away from the faith, walk away from obedience to parents, and go ahead and marry the unbeliever. God doesn't want that to happen in any life represented in this room. But there was a second problem, and it is that that we want to focus on tonight. Verse 13 says, And this have ye done again. 
In other words, he says back in verse 11, you have profaned the holiness of the Lord first by marrying the daughter of a strange God, and then he says you've done it again. A second way, a second time, you have profaned the holiness of the Lord. He goes on and says in verse 13, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, nor receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. What brought that response from God? That God would no longer receive the offerings of people. There were tears, there was crying, people coming to the altar of the Lord trying to approach God but not being accepted, not being received. Why? What was the second way that they had profaned the holiness of the Lord? What had happened was they had begun to divorce one another. Marriage is holy ground. And in the next couple of verses, Malachi is going to help these people understand the sanctity of marriage and why divorce is not ever acceptable to God. Verse 14, it says, Yet ye say, and this was the attitude of the people of Judah, every time God called them on the carpet, they always had some response, some smart answer, as it were, to God. And so verse 14 they say, yet ye say, wherefore? In other words, God, why won't you accept our offerings even though we have begun to divorce? Why can't we be accepted at the altar? Why won't you bless us? Verse 14 says, ye say, wherefore? Here's the answer. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Now notice what's said. The Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth. I want you to think tonight with me a little bit about marriage. I know there's some uh, weddings upcoming sometime in the church. I've heard uh, folks allude to that. I don't know whether it's real soon or just exactly when. But I want you to think, if you're married tonight, I want you to think about your marriage, your wedding, your vows. The day you got married, it may have been that there was a preacher, Bible-believing preacher, or maybe not. It might be that you sit here and you say, well, I got married, we weren't saved, you got married by a justice of the peace. There may have been some witnesses at your marriage. It might have been a church full. It might have been only one or two. But here's what I want you to understand. The day you got married, God was the witness. God was the witness. Your marriage might not have been just the way all of us sitting here today would have wished it to have been. Sometimes we look back, oh, I wish I had done it this way. Well, it doesn't matter how you did it. The day you got married, whether there were lots of human witnesses or not, or whether it was a civil servant or a preacher, listen, God was the witness of what you said. And I want you to think about what you said. And again, the words I refer to may not be the exact words that you used, but I want you to think about what it was that God witnessed the day you got married. Often, words like this are used for better, or for worse. Many of us use words like that. Sometimes we add something like this, for richer or for poorer. 
And sometimes we add words like this, in sickness or in health. Now I want you to think a little bit about what is happening when we make those kinds of statements as we get married. You see, what we're doing when we make those kinds of vows is this. We are establishing two extremes. Two possibilities that are very extreme, one from the other. We come together and we say, now I'm going to get married and it is for better or for worse. We say, you know, it, it might be for better and that's what we all expect. That boy, we might have a great marriage, we might have a great relationship, everything might really be great. However, I realize this, it also may be for worse. Maybe it's not going to turn out so good. Maybe he's not going to be what I thought he'd become and she's not going to be as sweet later as she is today and whatever it might be, but, but we're establishing extremes. I'm getting married for better. I'm getting married for worse. I'm getting married for richer or for poorer. Now listen, everybody gets married thinks it's going to be for richer. Oh, we just need to get our feet on the ground. We're going to have a little time. Pretty soon, boy, we're going to really be making out well, and we're going to save money. we got this plan. Hey, most of us are still broke. <laughs> we get this idea, you know, oh, I think it's going to get, you know, uh, oh, we're going to have the house. And, uh, listen, you say when you get married, for richer, maybe that's going to happen. But maybe we're going to live our life in poverty for poorer. I realize it could go to either one of those extremes. And then we say, in sickness or in health. What a perfect testimony God gave us tonight from Mike and Betty. Because we don't anticipate or plan those things we come to get married and our anticipation is good and wonderful and great but our vows say I realize it could go either way and then with God as our witness we make a sealing statement about that marriage and here it is, till death do us part. That's what we say. We don't say, oh, well, you know, if it gets pretty rough, I'm out of here. We talked in Sunday school about the exception clause. Nobody says, well, you know, I, wanna, I do want to build one little exception clause into my vows. Would you mind if I just kind of threw in a little exception clause? We don't do that. Now, it may be that you sit here tonight and you say, you know, I never really thought about that when I got married. doesn't matter whether you thought about it or not. You made statements, you made vows, you made commitments, and you know who was there? God was your witness. God was there when you said bad or worse, rich or poor, sickness, health. God was there when you said till death do us part and I know those folks didn't anticipate the pathway that God has given them 
And sometimes you and I look at our situation and we want to find some justification. We want to find some way out because it isn't going just the way we thought it would. But God was the witness. He goes on and says this, The Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion. The term companion is translated back in Judges chapter 20 and verse 11 in the concept of knit together. Knit together. The day you got married, you were knit together. Not by the preacher. Not by that little license recorded in some courthouse somewhere by God. And it says, the wife of thy covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant can be traced through the Bible. We're not going to take time to, to do that tonight. It's an interesting matter to trace through the Scriptures. A covenant is an agreement that includes obligations. It is not simply saying, you know, I think that's blue, and you say, yeah, I think it's blue too, we agree. It isn't that. It is agreement that includes obligations. I am obligated to my wife, and my wife is obligated to me. That's covenant. But it is different than contract. Every one of us probably in this room have at one time or another signed some kind of a contract. You know what a contract is all about? A contract is not so much your commitment of what you will do. A, co a contract is your way out if the other guy doesn't do what he said he would do. Oh, I have a contract, and if he doesn't perform, then I am relieved of my obligations. Oh, I have obligations, but my obligations are only dependent on him fulfilling his obligations. So if he doesn't do his part, I don't have to do my part. That's not covenant. Covenant is, this is what I will do. This is what I will do. The other person hopefully will fulfill their end of the covenant, but I am saying what I will do. The covenant in the Bible often sealed by a token. Most familiar to us would be the very work of God in putting the rainbow in the sky, the token of his promise. I will never flood the earth again. There is the token. In marriage, we often give the token of the ring. We say, here is the ring. This is the token of the vows and pledges that I have made. This is the seal of what I will do. It's my covenant. Malachi reminded them, she's the wife of thy covenant. And then verse 15, And did not he make one? I wish I understood the depth of that. I often think about it. I read it in the scriptures, the various places that it's mentioned. I try to get hold of what it means that one day the God of heaven took two people and made us one. 
And our challenge is to live that oneness. Uh, I sense a little bit of it in Trisha's in my relationship. We've been married for a number of years, and, and the longer our marriage goes, the sweeter and more precious it becomes. It's amazing to me. Uh, the oneness is more and more experienced as you go through the trials and the troubles and the hard times and those things get you down on your knees before God together. You, you tend to experience some of that oneness. But I know that not one of us can grasp the depth of the work of God that when you got married, he took two. You're not two anymore. Now you're one. And God did it. You see, it's holy ground. And then he says in this verse, Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. That's referring to he is the man. The man has the residue of the Spirit, the Spirit of the God ministering to him. And then just jump the next little statement for a moment. It says, Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now, that's a difficult construction in the original language, but I want to tell you the bottom line of it is this. And every person deep within his being knows that to break that covenant is wrong. Take heed to your spirit. I marvel at people who are looking for some way to justify the dissolution of their marriage looking for ways to justify, coming up with all the reasons why it ought to be okay. What he did, what he said, how he's treated me, or vice versa. Looking for some way to find acceptance from others. Yeah, it was a good decision to break that marriage. But deep in your spirit, you know. It's wrong. God made one and in the middle of verse 15 it says this and wherefore one why did God do that and then the answer that he might seek a godly seed what a statement that's what your marriage is all about your marriage is that God is seeking a godly seed your marriage is not simply about you and your mate your marriage is about the children that you are going to produce by the way I marvel at the number of couples getting married today who sometimes aren't sure they want to have children or maybe they don't want to have many well, we're just gonna have one why listen if you're gonna have one you might as well have at least five why one one gets in trouble. Five get in trouble, but you never know who did it. A part of marriage is this, God seeking a godly seed. God is trying to multiply His people. And by His grace, God one by one entrusts to couples a child. Oh, that's special. And when God entrusts to you a child, what it's all about is you rearing that child 
to know him, to love him, to serve him. That's what it's all about. What an incredible obligation and responsibility. I marvel that God gives us that privilege, but he does. And that's what your marriage is all about. Be serious about that. Look at verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith, listen to it, that he hateth putting away. God hates divorce, because that's what putting away is. Now listen, God doesn't hate divorced people. God loves people who go through that tragedy. And you and I have to love them too. Now I want to tell you, one of the greatest challenges that the church faces today, and because I know your pastor in his heart, I know it is something that he wrestles with. And you and I need to wrestle with it together. And that is this, how do we stand for truth but stand graciously and lovingly for those who have experienced the tragedy of divorce. How do I say to someone who's been through that, I love you and I care about you because I know you're hurting and I want to walk with you and I want to be everything I can be to you in Christ. At the same time, for the sake of young people and others, I have to say, but divorce is wrong. God hates divorce. Strike that balance in your ministry. Strike that balance. Seek it. To love those who've been through it and at the same time stand for the truth. God hates putting away. Now it goes on. One covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. There's a sin in divorce, and often that sin which is alluded to in this passage includes violence. People hurting one another in the midst of a marriage that has gone astray. God says you can't cover your violence and find acceptance with me. Look at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? There's Malachi saying to these people, you know, you've wearied God with your words and their arrogant response. Well, how have we wearied God? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's the day we live in, isn't it? When evil is called good and good's called evil. And then he says, and he delighteth in them. Or when you say this, when you say, well, where is the God of judgment? In other words, people were saying this. Well, you know, divorce is okay. We found times that we can justify it. It's okay. In fact, it's, it's good. It's good that she got away from him. It's good that the kids didn't have to endure that. It's good. Listen, sometimes there needs to be a separation for the sake of the physical welfare of a wife or children. That doesn't mean there has to be a divorce. And people say then, well, if it's wrong, then where is the God of judgment? I mean, why doesn't God judge these people if it's so wrong? Aren't you glad that God doesn't judge directly every time you and I go astray? 
But let not the absence of the direct judgment of God all of a sudden make us think that something God calls bad is in reality good. Because it isn't. You might be here tonight and you might be saying something like this, well, Brother Griffith, my marriage is secure. So I hear what you're saying, but you know, it doesn't really affect me. Because we're, we're settled, we're secure, we've been married for years, everything's great. Listen, I find obviously in a setting like this, that it is not many people who are wrestling with their own marriage. But you know what I find? I find that we are counselors to others. And here's what I find among us, that because we do care about people and we don't want to see people hurting, when we see somebody in a difficult situation, we sometimes will lend our support to them and say, well, you know, maybe it would be best if you got divorced. Don't do that. Hurt with people. Because people hurt. Seek to be there for them. And love them and care about them and support them. Do everything you can to help people in a difficult marriage. But don't encourage them to violate this clear teaching of God when God says He hates divorce. Now I've had people say to me, and you've probably had people say to you, why is this divorce thing such a big issue? I mean, in the church today, you'd be more received if you were a murderer than if you were divorced. You ever hear people say things like that? I've had people say that to me. I mean, you'd be more welcome if you'd murdered somebody or robbed a bank than if you were divorced. Well, that's a wrong attitude, and we ought never to portray that. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you why this thing of marriage is so incredibly important to God. Why your marriage is important to God. You see, marriage is that wonderful, marvelous testimony of God to us and to the world of the undying love of Jesus Christ for the church. That's what marriage is. That's what your marriage is. Ephesians chapter 5 teaches it so clearly that the man portrays Christ and the wife portrays the church, and hallelujah, nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. And my marriage to my wife is supposed to be a, a teacher to my children and to anybody who might ever look on our relationship, and they are supposed to see in us Christ and the church. And therefore they must see in me an undying love for Tricia that nothing could ever kill that love and nothing could ever break that relationship because that's what our marriage is. That's what your marriage is. It is the living testimony of God to a lost and dying world as well as the church of this incredible relationship of Jesus Christ and His people. That's why it's so important. I wish that God's people could get hold of that. I wish that every man here tonight would understand, sir, you are supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And your children ought to be able to look up to you and find in you a portrait of Jesus Christ. The way you live every day, the way you treat your wife, the way you treat those children, the way you live your testimony, they ought to be able to find Christ in you. 
and that every wife in this room tonight would understand that you are supposed to be a portrait of the church, the church living in submission to the head Christ, and as you submit to the headship of your husband, you are teaching your children how they are supposed to submit to the Lord Jesus. That's what our marriage is. Not just a human relationship. Not just a human bond. It's holy ground. Holy ground. It is a relationship that is to portray an eternal bond between Christ and the church. For us, it is a temporal bond till death do us part. Is there an overemphasis on marriage in this matter in the church? Oh, there are churches that I think have gone off the deep end. And I don't know what, I don't know what this church does, but I know churches where if you're divorced, you can't even become a member. I think they're off the deep end. I don't think you can find that in the Word of God. The Bible draws certain lines. A man who's been divorced ought not be a pastor. A man who's been divorced ought not be a deacon. And there are certain limitations that the Word of God puts. But where some churches have gone, it's way off base. It's totally out of line with Scripture. At the same time, let us recognize that the God of heaven takes marriage and holds it up as a very, very special union. Your marriage. Your marriage tonight may not be going as well as you wish it was going. And you might even deep in your heart think, boy, I wish there was some way out. You wanted the better and the richer and the health and you got something else. But if you got married, understand tonight, it is until death that you part.